As you're seated this morning, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, about halfway through the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So why are you here today? Why are you a part of the Crossing Church? Why do you show up on Sundays, our missional community gatherings, family meals, our DNA group meetings? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Do you ever check your motives, check the reasons for why you do what you do? I remember uh, the first church I pastored, um, we lived about a quarter of a mile down the highway from the church, and uh, Abigail was about four or five, and Jennifer, I think, was home um, with immigrants sick, and so we were driving to our worship gathering. Of course, you know, back then we just said we're driving to church, and Abigail's like, Dad, why do we go to church? And Abigail, at that age, and for quite a long time, just asked why about everything, and I was like, so as I said this answer, the Holy Spirit started convicting, you know, what's because it's Sunday, it's what we do on Sundays. Immediately, God's like, is that really why you're doing this? Is you just going, going on Sunday because it's Sunday, it's what you do? Does it really become that routine, that habit forming for you? So as I began to change my answer to make it more God-glorifying, Christocentric, uh, gospel-centered, you know, well, you know, Jesus has given us so much and we've worshipped him all week and now we get together with our family and worship him in a unique way with music and preaching and giving and, and serving, um, you know, she looked at me and said, you know, good job, Dad. That's much more ecclesiologically correct and Christocentric. And, um, but it caused me to check myself, check my motives as, as a pastor of a church. Or, you know, why do I do what do I do? And we need to constantly examine the motives to know the, that the why we do what we do is just as important as what we're actually doing. And so we're doing that with this series on core values to explain why we do what we do as a crossing church, why we organize the missional communities, why do we have DNA groups, why do we gather on Sundays like this, why do we do what we do in the Sunday worship gathering. Scott's going to come walk us through that in a couple of weeks when uh, he looks at worship. But the, the why we do what we do is rooted in who we are. Who we are in our identity leads to our mission, our vision. So this vision we have that we desire all people to enjoy Christ always by following him and, and, and seeing the gospel change their life that flows from this, these core values, these things that are, not, that are essential, these things that we're never going to change away from. It is uh, core to who we are. And so we've looked at these core values, uh, gospel-centered theology, gospel-centered belief, gospel-centered ecclesiology. For the sake of time, I'm not going to review those. You can listen to those teachings on our website. But today we're looking at gospel-centered mission. The, the fact that we, we, are, we have not organized as a church, we've not planted a church in Monroe so that we can have an organization. Like, we've organized the crossing, look around, here's the crossing, ah, oh, let's pat ourselves on the back. We're here, we're a church. We, we haven't organized as a church so that, that we can look each other and feel good about what we're doing and pat each other on the back and say, oh, isn't this nice? We, we have a church that we want to attend and invite people to. And we're doing things the way that we think that we should do them as a church. And let's, let's feel good about that. Let's, let's kind of have fun as we go through the rest of life. Let's, let's kind of just do things to make each other happy. And so that when you leave the worship gathering, our main concern is that you, you feel good about what you experienced. That you can say, well, the, the sermon was good enough. The songs were good. I enjoyed the, the time with my brothers and sisters. The coffee was even good today. And that's what we're after. That's, that's not what we're after. We're not here for that purpose, to feed this consumeristic mentality in our culture about, about Sunday worship gatherings, about being a church. We, we are caught up in this big mission, this big thing that God's been doing since creation, will be doing until he returns and culminates everything with the eternal state. And we're, we're by his grace caught up in that. God has graciously brought, brought us together. He's been, he's been having us together. We've been growing, been transformed, being changed. But we're caught up in something that's bigger than the crossing church. Way bigger than the crossing church. Bigger than any church. Bigger than any individual. It's this, this mission of God. And so don't walk out of here satisfied because you enjoy the worship gathering experience. We're, we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. We're at war we're in a fight to, to lay down our life for the sake of others who, who don't experience this on Sundays. Who don't experience the gospel transformation that we're experiencing. Who aren't experiencing family, brothers and sisters, serving and sacrificing for the, the good of each other. 
And so see this in this, this uh, mission statement, this value statement, gospel-centered mission. The mission of God is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you in order to bring a rebellious people back into relationship with our Creator. Through disciple-making, multiplication, equipping, sending, and church planting, we desire to saturate cultures with the gospel of Jesus. This gospel will eventually reach all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages, transforming individuals and cultures. And a gospel-transformed culture begins more and more to resemble the kingdom of God Jesus came to initiate and will one day bring to full realization. We seek a kingdom flavored by the character, conduct, and attitude of a life of Jesus lived out by his followers in all cultures. We recognize the grace of God in all cultures and food and arts and family and government, recreation, and we celebrate with them while trusting that the gospel is the solution for mankind's greatest need and the brokenness found in all cultures. The mission is our greatest mission in life, which saturates our families and jobs while calling us to sacrifice whatever is necessary to see Jesus become more and more our greatest treasure. So we're going to walk through some implications of that mission, that vision statement or value statement. And um, this, this could be three different sermons, but we're going to try and walk through these uh, in a timely manner. Number one, we proclaim the gospel in word and power. We proclaim the gospel in word and power. The gospel is the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message about a person who has actually done something in historical time and place. Jesus really lived, really died, really rose from the dead. These things really happened. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's a historical account. The gospel is the message about that man and what he's done. And so the, the gospel is... Uh, you see this in several passages. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 23 and 24. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding. So what is the imperishable seed? The living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We have been born again through something. What? The imperishable seed that doesn't wither. What is the imperishable seed? It is the Word of God. The Word of God that gives testimony about the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. Right? 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What is John doing? John, the beloved disciple, one of Jesus' closest followers, what is he doing? He's saying we are writing these things that we have heard, we have seen, we have touched, we can testify to this man who actually lived. We experienced life with him. These events of his life were actually true. And now we're passing them along to you. We're eyewitnesses. We're telling you what we experienced and we're giving it to you. Why? So you too may have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Do you ever think about the fact that the fellowship that we get to experience through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, is intended to be just as real and powerful as what the disciples experienced in the first century? Like there's that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, where we don't touch Jesus physically, but he's so alive inside of us that we're experiencing his life, experiencing his life corporately through the body, that it's, it's that real. And that we can pass that, that eyewitness account on to others who come after us. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, what is the word of Christ? A few verses earlier, in verses 8 and 9. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. We come alive in Christ through the word of Christ, this word that is a confession, a believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is a specific message about a specific person who did a specific work. It's not just generic good news. It's about Jesus. It's not, it's not about just people getting better and improving themselves. No, it's, it's about how only Jesus can do that. And so all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, and we are sent to, to spread this message of the gospel because people can't be saved apart from this message. 
from this, this specific message that's being proclaimed to them. They must hear this message. They must believe this message. So the gospel is a message about Jesus that we proclaim. And it's a message proclaimed with words. In other words, you can't be nice to people or treat people well and expect the gospel to ooze out of your skin onto their skin and they catch it like cooties or something. You know, we're just nice enough and they just kind of get it. You can't share the gospel by osmosis, just touching someone and they get it. It would be great, but you have to physically tell the words. Speak the words about Jesus. Tell the story. It doesn't have to be hard. It's not supposed to be hard. We just speak about the one that we love and we're thankful for the gospel that saved us. It's easy to talk about the things we love. So it's easy for us to talk about our latest binge on Netflix. It's easy for us to talk about our favorite football team, about how Dallas might still make the playoffs without Romo and Dez for the next two months. Possible. It's easy to talk about how LSU, if they played Duke in basketball this year, is definitely beating them because of Ben Simmons. It's easy to speak about these things in life, our kids, our grandkids, our favorite foods. It's easy to talk about the things we love, and it's the same with Jesus. Don't overcomplicate it. Tell the story about the man who changed everything for you and is changing everything for you. But you have to actually talk about it. But it's a story that's not just... Demonstrated in words, it's demonstrated in power. So proclaiming the gospel is not just a robotic telling of facts and details. Where, yes, Jesus lived these years and he did these things and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, blah, 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 blah. All right? It's not just robotically going through facts. You have to live in such a way that it actually is evidence in your life that you believe it. So see this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in your Lord Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See the combination of the gospel message that was implanted in these people demonstrated that they truly believed it and were living it out. There's a, there's a lifestyle, there's a testimony of faith that Paul was able to spread throughout the early church because of the way these Thessalonians lived their life. And so we can't just be robots proclaiming a gospel message that we then deny about how we live our life. There, there has to be evidence in our life that we really believe this. This is really something we do. Like, we don't just worship when we're in front of each other, that we go back into our homes and to our families and we're worshiping Jesus all the time. That this is really part of our identity. So it's wrong to say I share the gospel through my lifestyle. I just live a holy life and assume people will get it. They won't. There are plenty of people who follow Allah, who follow Joseph Smith, who follow other, uh, other teachings that are out there, who live good lives, who look morally, outwardly good in our culture. You can't assume they're going to look at you and that's a good person because of Jesus. You just might be awesome. But it's equally wrong to say, I just got to speak the gospel. It doesn't matter how I live my life because the power is in the gospel. The power is in the gospel to save coming through an instrument that's demonstrating the power in the way they live their life. When I talk about life of perfection, I think we've, we've been here long enough. We know we're not talking about perfectionism. We're talking about a life of repentance, a life of trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus. And that's why our own mission in the city of Monroe's mission of communities is to show the love of Jesus in such tangible ways with the people we do life with, the people around us, that they see the love of Christ coming through us that will open doors to get to the gospel message. It just comes out of our conversation. We talked about being gospel fluent, where you're speaking the gospel. It's part of your language. It's part of everyday how you talk. And sometimes you don't even realize it's coming out of you. It's just it's so much a part of your identity and nature. 
People won't be saved by being impressed by our good deeds. We have to speak the gospel. But many of the good deeds will build bridges to give us opportunities to give evidence to Jesus Christ. Why he makes us who he makes us. Why he calls us to do the things he calls us to do. The question that we have to ask, and really think about this. How is the Holy Spirit going to call us to live as a family of servant missionaries in our city? In such a way that, that we are such a peculiar people that when they ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have, the only answer possible is Jesus. That's a lot to, lot to think about. A lot of words. But, ba- but basically in our culture, in the Bible Belt South, a lot of people are nice. Like People come from other cultures to our culture and they're like, everybody's so nice. People talk to each other, they look at each other, give you eye contact, say, hey, how you doing in the store? They, excuse me, I'm sorry. They hold open doors. They're friendly to waiters and waitresses and cashiers. Like, there's just a, a common courtesy in our culture that's pretty normal. So just being nice is not going to give people reason to say, why do you do what you do? There, there's another level of sacrifice and service and, and giving of ourselves and laying down our lives for our friends and neighbors, coworkers and family that's really going to set us apart as being a peculiar people. I mean, I mean, maybe it is going on a Saturday morning and cleaning up a bunch of underbrush and trash. Or, or maybe it is showing up at Jack Hayes every morning to walk kids from their, their cars to the classrooms. And maybe it is going to a nursing home and loving on people that, that sometimes are forgotten and loving on a staff that doesn't think anybody cares about them. Maybe it is those things, but, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's more that God's going to call us to do. The Holy Spirit is going to empower us to do so that we are that peculiar people. Paul, Paul speaks of this in Romans 13, 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He's talking to believers, Christians, wake up for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and je- jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We will be a peculiar people if we are people denying the flesh. Because our culture is nice, but our culture is also indulgent. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who God's created us to be. That's who we are going to be. Secondly, because the gospel-centered mission is our core value, we also contextualize the gospel so we proclaim the gospel in word and power, and secondly, we contextualize the gospel. Contextualization is simply taking the gospel message, you don't change the core of the message, but you help communicate it to different cultures and parts of the culture in a way that they can grasp the gospel with as few barriers as possible. So contextualization involves vocabulary, language, emotions, illustrations, addressing common objections and obstacles in a culture, and, and more and more and more. There, there's no universal way to speak the gospel to all people. There's no like one tried and true method that you can communicate to all people and they understand the gospel. Everything you do when you speak the gospel to somebody, you are contextualizing. Whether you're talking to an old person who's grown up in the church, whether you're talking and sharing the gospel with a kid. You're changing words, you're changing illustrations, you're changing something to help them understand the gospel message. Everything we're doing in a worship gathering has got contextualization in mind. Everything you do, you're either moving towards some people and away from others. And so while contextualization is important, also understand the limitations. You, we cannot communicate the gospel in a way that is 100% understandable to 100% of the people all the time. There are limits to contextualization. So I'm not going to tell a joke that everybody thinks is funny. Some people will, some people won't. I'm not going to give an illustration that everybody resonates with. Some of you will, some of you won't. Understand there are limits. There's no way we can 100% contextualize everybody. But proper contextualization also appreciates the culture it's in, but it's not afraid to critique the culture that it's in. So every culture has elements of good and bad in it. The doctrine of sin shows us that people and cultures are never as good as they should be. Every culture is filled with sinners. 
But the doctrine of common grace helps us to see that people in cultures are never as flawed as they should be. So that in every culture, there are good things that are there by God's grace that can be appreciated and valued, but there's also sin in every culture that needs to be critiqued. So I hear a song playing um, in Daily Press the other day, and it keeps mentioning John 3.16. I'm like, what is this song? It's got John 3.16 all the way through it. So I start Googling, you know, John 3.16 song, and it pulls up Keith Urban. I guess it's a new song. Basically a song that's about growing up in the South and praising the things that we experienced growing up in the South. And, and the, the kind of the message of the song is everything I've learned, I've learned from John Cougar, uh, John Deere, and John 3.16. All right? So if you grew up in the South, there's a lot of things that resonate with, with you in that song. There's a lot of commonalities that we share as people in the South. And like, okay, I get some of that. There's, there's also a lot that you can critique with that song. I'm not going to do it right now. But it's out there. Contextualization learns and uses the culture to build bridges of communication to get to the most important message, which is the gospel. If we do, guys, if we do contextualization right, if we do it right, then the only thing that will offend someone is the gospel. Is the gospel. It is okay for the gospel to offend. It is offensive, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, a stumbling block. But... Other things shouldn't be offensive. And those are the barriers we're trying to get rid of as we communicate the gospel to our culture. Uh, You see this contextualization in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. When Paul would arrive in a new city, the first place he would go would be synagogues. Paul grew up Jewish, even though he was a Roman citizen. He was a Jew more than anything. He knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. He would reason with Jewish men and say, you know the Messiah that you learn about, you read about in the Old Testament? Well, he's come. Here's who he is. It's Jesus of Nazareth, and this is how I can prove it. Right? But then Paul would also go like to the, the, the Mars Hill in Acts 17 and speak to the Greek philosophers and Epicureans. And he would be able to, to reason with them, not from the scriptures, because they didn't care about that. That had no authority in their life. But he would begin with creation and even quote some of their own poets in order to communicate the gospel to them in a way that they would understand it. And it tells us in Acts 17 that some believed and some walked away, just like with the Jews, just like with us, just like here, with everyone. Paul kind of um, encapsulates this philosophy of contextualization in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all, verse 19 says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul is not saying that he would hang out and start sinning with a bunch of sinners so that he could reach them with the gospel or that he would uh, compromise his integrity or compromise his identity or change some core things about his belief to reach. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that he's building bridges of communication through all these different contexts and cultures in order to see some of those people saved with the gospel. And that's how Paul operated within his ministry. So as we contextualize the gospel, we seek to make it understandable as we can to as many people as we can by removing as many barriers as we can. So we try to avoid churchy theological words in our worship gathering like ecclesiology, unless you can't. So you just define it well and teach people new words. We don't want to dumb Christianity down. We don't want to dumb theology down, but we don't want to present the gospel to people in a way where you have to have a college education to understand it. Um, how long we preach is, is something that we take into account. Some people say you shouldn't preach more than 20 minutes because people's attention spans are only 20 minutes. We're like people are sitting through three-hour movies all the time. So we think attention spans are much shorter than that so that you should have an ebb and a flow to your sermon. We use different illustrations, examples, so that you're tuning in, you're tuning out, trusting the Holy Spirit to work through all of that. So we, we, we take some of those things into account, not other things. We, we use translations that are more understandable than, say, the King James Version, which has a readability on a readability scale. The KJV actually scores 12th grade and above. So we want something that's more understandable than the KJV, but also holds true to the original languages. So we go with the ESV, which is uh, easier to read than like the New American Standard, but, but uh, more accurate, we believe, than the New Living Translation or uh, the NIV or some of the other translations. But not, not saying all those translations are bad. 
but that's the one we prefer to use. We choose songs that are rich in theology, focused on Jesus. Um, hard to find sometimes, but you can find them. And so you, uh, you sing songs that you may not be familiar with, and, and, and we're okay with that. Like, if, you're, if you have a song that you're not sure what it is, feel the freedom just to read the words and pray the words into your soul and learn the songs. But we also set up a, a Spotify channel so that you can go learn the songs so that when you come on Sunday mornings, you can sing the songs with us because we want to sing songs that are rich in Jesus and gospel centrality and theology. Um, we don't just need contextualization or worship gatherings, but we also we need contextualization in how we communicate the gospel every day as individuals. So knowing your culture, knowing what people value, knowing what objections people have and what barriers they have to the gospel. For instance, we're in the Bible Belt South, so a vast majority of our culture has a church or Bible background of some degree. And so it's very common and very good to ask people, are you part of a local church? Like, even people who aren't know what you're talking about. Very easy way to get into spiritual conversations with people. It's also common in our culture to see people who are part of local churches as good people and people who aren't a part of local churches as bad people. And so important, it's important in our context to call people who are far from God to repent and believe in the gospel, but also to call religious people to repent of their religiousness and believe in the gospel. Going to church, being a part of a church, doesn't make you good. In our culture, a lot of people think it does. So the person getting drunk and naked and having sex outside of marriage each weekend needs to repent, but so does the church member who self-righteously condemns the naked drunk person having sex outside of marriage, who they won't invite into their house because of that reason. Knowing our culture helps you know how to proclaim the gospel of grace that sets us free from the sin of sexual immorality and drunkenness and sets us free from the sin of pride, self-righteousness, and arrogance. Everyone needs the gospel, and admitting you need the gospel is the first step toward believing in the gospel. And we want a church that contextualizes the gospel well in our worship gatherings, and then our people contextualize, we contextualize the gospel well as we go out and work and live and eat and shop and recreate in the city. Everything we do is pushing some away and is drawing some closer. And so as much as we can, we want to draw people closer to the gospel. So we would not, we have a picture for you, we, don't, we would not advocate this as an effective contextualization in our culture of the gospel. <laughs> Theologically, we know what you're saying, right? <laughs> Neighborly, this is probably not a good idea. Because even if theologically we know what you're saying, if your neighbors are in church and they don't know what you're saying, they're not going to want to find out what you're saying. Like, I'm not going in that house. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not interested. Church people might get that. Unchurched neighbors are not. So we don't, we don't believe also that... Go ahead to the next slide because that's going to distract me. We don't believe that there's a silver bullet method of proclaiming the gospel. So we don't believe there's a tried and true method that works with all people at all times. Never has been, never would be. God has not allowed that. Why? Because if there was, we would worship the method and not the gospel. We would make much of the method and not make much of Jesus, which is what the gospel is supposed to do. What happens when you think that there is a tried and true method, there's a tried and true model of church planting or tried and true evangelistic presentation or tried and true apologetic when you think there's one method that is the method, then you become very arrogant about that method. I mean, I've met people who would not attend a church that we were part of if we didn't share the gospel like that. This one way, not coming. If y'all don't do that, I'm not coming. It's the same kind of arrogance that we have to guard against as the cross. We talked about this as leaders. We have felt this from the beginning. This is an issue that we need to be on guard against. Ed Setzer has, has shown this in his research about different types of church plant models, that, that church plants like us, one of the, the areas and mistakes that we can make is we become very arrogant in how we do church. We think we've figured out this secret. We've got a monopoly on pure church. Nobody's church is as pure as our church. And if you're, if you're part of the crossing or in, in beginning to check us out, please, please know we are not perfect. We have not figured it all out. We are a glorious mess. Glorious mess. 
And we never want to present ourselves to the city, to any individual as, well, man, nobody's doing church like us. We have got this nailed down. If you're looking for that, you've come to the wrong place. God has been gracious to bring us together. He's been gracious to save us, gracious to help us grow and mature. But if we ever think that we are the only true church in our context, we are hopelessly foolish and arrogant. And God needs to break us of our pride and call us to repentance today. Our focus is on Jesus and the gospel. Everything we get right is because of him and his grace and because we are pointing people to him. Everything we get wrong, we need to honestly admit, repent of, and fix. All for the sake of getting the gospel to as many people as possible. Thirdly, we seek gospel saturation, multiplication, and cultural transformation. Because we're caught up in this mission, because the power of the gospel is in the gospel, the spirit of God to save sinners, we can unashamedly scatter the gospel far and wide, indiscriminately to all people, in a wise and winsome way, properly contextualizing the gospel, believing that God will save some from all peoples of all nations, including here in Monroe. The religious that are in churches, the irreligious that are not in churches, to the furthest reaches of our planet, that, that we're part of this big thing that God's doing, leading up to Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our goal is gospel saturation. If we can be a part of getting the gospel shared and proclaimed well to every person, every home, every street, every neighborhood, every context in our area, we believe God's going to save some from all those contexts. Our goal is not to save. We scatter the seed and God saves, but we want to saturate Monroe with the gospel. Just because we're in the Bible Belt doesn't mean everybody's heard the gospel. Or everybody's heard a, a, an accurate presentation of the gospel, even. So how do we live lives among all people willing to speak the gospel to all people? That's, again, why we're in missional communities. Are we diverse enough right now to reach all the peoples in our culture, in our context? Nope, we're not. We're not even close. But all it takes is one individual, one family from each diverse group who follow Jesus wholeheartedly, who will commit to making disciples and begin to do that every day as a missional community, then you can begin to see how we can reach diverse groups in this region. Like Scott Kendrick and I talk about all the time. How are we going to reach that, that person, that part of our culture? Like, how are we going to have people who can go into that neighborhood and live as a missional community and see the gospel transform homes and lives? We, we don't know, because it's probably not coming through one of us three or, or even who's a part of this community right now. It's people who aren't part of the crossing right now. And so the gospel gets to this person who knows this person who knows this person, who is the person who can go into that neighborhood and live out the gospel as leading a missional community that can transform that neighborhood in ways that none of us could right now. Because they're the missionary for that neighborhood and that street and that context. Think about it, from Acts 2 to Acts 28, in about three decades, the gospel went from 120 Jewish men and women in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost to spread to dozens of major cities in the Roman Empire, thousands upon thousands of new believers, Jews and Gentiles, so that the gospel penetrated from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, because it was in Rome, and from Rome you can go anywhere in the earth, or as far as you could at that time in history. See how the gospel crosses over, that's in 30 years, how the gospel crosses over and through the barriers that we erect. So when we're hesitant to invite that coworker to lunch, when we're hesitant to cross the street to introduce ourselves to somebody who just moved in the neighborhood, when we're hesitant to sit by that kid in gym, when we're hesitant to, to uh, talk to that person that nobody else has talked to, when we're, when we're erecting these barriers and letting our awkwardness get in the way of the gospel, realize that the gospel crushes those barriers. Because God's put you right there in your life to be the missionary, the, the, the person sent by the Holy Spirit to that person in that context. Like you're, you're not in your job, you're not in your neighborhood, you're not in your school, you're not in your wherever, your classrooms or your professors, you're not there by accident. The Holy Spirit has sent you there. 
And so we begin to see how gospel saturation leads to gospel multiplication as all of us begin to see ourselves as missionaries on our mission fields with the power of the gospel, doing it together. You know, one of the ideas in the traditional church that we're trying to crush is this idea that uh, the pastor is the primary or the only disciple maker or evangelist. Like a lot of us grew up in churches and our pastor churches were Far too many times, I would get that phone call, that text message, that email saying, hey, Pastor Jared, Brother Jerry, can you come and share the gospel with this friend of mine, this coworker, this neighbor? And because I love to talk about Jesus and I love the gospel, I'd say, yes, I can. And I'd go with them and share the gospel and talk about Jesus. And some people would believe and some wouldn't. But I'm also prideful and arrogant. I like to be needed and I just like to feel valued. And so that's also why I would go. Until graciously God began to teach me and show me through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that you're not helping your people at all. They're looking at you to do all the work. You're not equipping them, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry as Ephesians 4 tells you to do. And so those conversations began to go like this. Hey, hey Brother Jerry, can you come and share the gospel with this, this family member of mine? Um, no, I can't. But I can help you Understand how you can articulate articulate the gospel and you can practice with me and I'll even go with you, but you're going to do it. Because you have the same Holy Spirit, the same gospel message that I have. Many of us, if not all of us, have been changed and are being changed by the gospel as we've been a part of the crossing for the last 12, 18 months or or less or longer. And and from conversations that I've had with you just just in our DNA group Friday with... uh, some of the guys, man, just hearing these guys articulate the gospel is just beautiful. And I told them, man, you guys are getting it more and more and more. And, and that's going to make an impact on the people that you're doing life with. Because you don't hear everybody understanding the gospel and communicating the gospel like that. And we can go around this room and tell stories about how we're saying no to more and more sin. We're saying yes to more and more righteousness. Our worship is stronger and deeper and more robust. Many of us are experiencing that. But has it reached a point where this transformation that we're experiencing, other people around us in life are experiencing? Not because, just because they see it oozing out of us, but because we are beginning to look around at our lives and become intentional as missionaries, as servants, as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we're, we're beginning to pursue people, be intentional in conversations with people. Like we really see ourselves as missionaries, each one of us. That, that's where multiplication happens. Not when we bring people, even if you bring people to this building to hear from the discipleship leaders. But when you're going and becoming a discipleship leader right where you live, work, eat, shop, play. You don't have to come to this building. You don't even have to go to an MC gathering. You have the gospel. You are a missionary. You are sent to those people. That's when multiplication happens. It's not a few people, or or it's not 60,000 people watching 22 people do all the work like a football game. It's 60,000 people grabbing a football, going back to their neighborhood, and starting a football game with their neighbors. That's multiplication. And so we are seeking to saturate our gospel, saturate our culture with the gospel. We're seeking to see gospel multiplication as all of us begin to live intentionally with the gospel, to spread the gospel to everybody that God has sovereignly put in our lives. That's what we're after. And we're not there yet. We see like little hints of it, little stories of it, but we're not there. Um, Just had a conversation with a guy this week who's asking about our church. I was explaining what we're doing, how we're doing it, and so he's asking about our small groups. He comes from a very large church in the Dallas area. And so he's like, your, your small groups, so they get too big, you just kind of divide them. You have two groups, right? I'm like, no, we don't, we don't divide them. We're, we have missional communities, and we're, we're hoping to send out maybe two couples to go plant a new missional community. Yeah, so you, you divide it, right? Like, no, we're, we're not seeking gospel division. We're seeking gospel multiplication so that a, a missional community of 40 is not split in half to have two MCs of 20. But from a missional community of 40, we're going to send out four teams to plant four new missional communities. That'd be two couples, two families, one family and a few college students. 
so that one MC becomes five MCs. That's gospel multiplication. But it requires you seeing yourself now as one of those leaders soon to be sent out. Seeing yourself now as one of those leaders in your MC where you're not just waiting for someone to take the initiative with you, but you're now pressing in, you're now pursuing, you're now taking the initiative to be poured into as one of those leaders. And you're immediately looking around for who can I pour into? Who can I help equip? Who can I help encourage to be one of these people? That's gospel multiplication. And that is what we are pursuing. And then we're seeking not just saturation, not just multiplication, but cultural transformation. Acts 19 is a great story of cultural transformation. We're not going to read it for the sake of time, but the gospel so penetrated the hearts and lives of the people of Ephesus that the local craftsmen who would make and sell literal idols that would, people would buy and use to worship their pagan gods, they began to fear that uh, their livelihood would disappear. And so they organized a riot that would wipe out Paul and his, his helpers so that the gospel wouldn't spread and people would go back to worshiping their idols. You read this story in Acts chapter 19. This would be like Planned Parenthood and other abortion mills around the country coming out and saying, we're going out of business because nobody's seeking abortions any longer. This would be like the porn industry or adult bookstores in Monroe saying, there's nobody coming to our websites any longer. Nobody's showing up at our stores any longer. We, We can't stay in business. That is cultural transformation. But guys, see that cultural transformation is not just sinful things disappearing. It's also art and beauty and renovation and restoration and good things happening throughout the city so that the ugly and the broken and the abandoned begin to be restored and remade and used again. And the city thrives with good music and good food and good drink and and good parties and good times as the, the gospel changes people's lives and as the kingdom of God comes to fuller and fuller fruition. The kingdom of Christ coming is not just sinful things being put away, but it's also good things being embraced and shared and lived out. And so we are a part of that in our city. People not living in fear, but people walking in faith, demonstrating the life of Jesus to everyone around us. Businesses not just consumed with profit, but businesses asking, how can I bless my employees? How can I bless my community? Schools thriving because parents are pouring into their children at home and teachers are reaping the benefits as they come to school ready to learn and disciplined ready to learn. That is cultural transformation. You see, the gospel is not simply about seeing people converted to Christianity so that when they die, they can go to heaven. In fact, the gospel uh, uh, is not just about making disciples. Like Jesus said that in Matthew 28, go into all nations and make disciples. The gospel is not just even about that. The gospel is, is bigger than that. It goes back to the garden where men and women were created in the image of God to bear his image and have dominion over all creation so that wherever you go in creation, you see the image of God ruling and reigning over all things. Like the language there that's conjured up is this idea of a king ruling over a kingdom. And all through his kingdom, he puts an image of himself, a statue, so that wherever you go in his kingdom, you see the image, the statue, and you know this is where the king rules. This is where the king reigns. We were created for that purpose. So that wherever we go in creation, we are bearing the image of our king so that you see his rule, you see his reign coming through us. That's what we were made for. And as they were told to to worship God, to know God, to love God, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that's what Adam and Eve and their sons and daughters were supposed to do. But we know that didn't happen like that. Sin came in and cursed all creation. The image is scarred. We still bear the image, but the image is marred. It's affected by sin. We bear his image in a flawed way. Creation's under our dominion, but in a flawed way. So God sends his son. He sends the second Adam, who would not be the image bearer, but would be the image. He would be the exact representation of God. He, he is God. He sends his son to come and do what we fail at. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we fail at. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. And in him, Christ's life flowing through us, we can once again bear the image of God as new creations in Christ to all of creation. And the image of of God in us begins to be restored. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Not fully, 
One day that's coming, glorification is coming, but in a real tangible way so that when we do good deeds, people, when we do them and filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, people will not even actually praise us, but they will praise our Father in heaven. That's not amazing. We're so used to doing good things and have people pat us on the back. You know, we're, we're the church of the week. Look at us. Y'all are awesome. Right? But we can actually do good deeds so that people will praise God because they see that there's a goodness, a quality of goodness, a depth of goodness that is, that is not human. Supernatural. And we're headed to a day with full restoration. When not only will we be fully restored in a glorified state, but even creation will be restored. Creation longs for this. Listen to how the Old Testament writer Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 65, beginning of verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad of my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Can you imagine the the day that the last tear falls on earth? No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. But the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall not build houses. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, but they shall be the offspring of the blessing of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. There's a lot of textual things there that I'm not going to take time to explain. We're not going to have kids in heaven, but just see the big picture, the beauty of full restoration. Full beauty, full life. And so what, what are we now? Now, in First Peter 2, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for our own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's who we are right now. And the lens in which we see people and cultures is that we see every person we meet as valuable and worthy because they bear the image of God. Sinned, scarred, yes, so are we. But still image bearers. And they have value from conception to their last breath. And every person you see has the potential to be a brother or sister in Christ. Has potential to be reconciled back to their creator, a son and daughter of their father in heaven. Not just citizens of Monroe, but citizens of Nicaragua. And citizens of the Turkish Muslims in Germany. And citizens of the Sichuan people in the province of China. Three different people groups that we have contacts with that could be people groups that we do work among as we go forward if the Holy Spirit leads us in that direction. But part of our mission is not just to take the gospel to the nations, but to live on mission in our city, to walk through open doors that God's provided, to partner with other good works locally. One door that God has opened for us is joining our local Southern Baptist Association. So y'all know that we've invested time and energy, not just in local pastors and local Southern Baptist leaders, but also we did a vacation Bible school for a local SBC church. Um, The Jack Hayes MCs, a lot of y'all still go and do the Parkview ministry with First Baptist Monroe. And we're prayerful about more and more doors opening so that we can be a part of bringing life and vitality back to a lot of dying churches, mostly dying churches. And so um, on Monday night, October 26th, we're going to be voted, back in, uh, voted into our local association at Fair Park Baptist Church. They're going to have their annual meeting and they'll vote us in as an official church, official member of um, the local Southern Baptist Association. By God's grace, we're, we're part of that. That's locally who we are. We want to build bridges to these churches so that we can help them re- rejuvenate, uh, get better. <laughs> By God's grace, we're caught up in this big mission that started with creation and will end with the new creation. 
which means we proclaim the gospel in word and power, and we do it in a way that reaches all cultures and peoples with as few barriers as possible. And as we are saturated with the gospel, we make disciples and make disciples to see cultures transformed by the gospel. We're about to continue to worship through prayer and worship through sharing in the bread and the cup, worship through giving, worship through singing, and then we'll leave. And we'll continue to worship as we leave. John Piper said this, Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. So our value of gospel-centered missions has an end time on it. There'll be a day we don't longer preach the gospel, we just sing about the glories of the gospel. But we're not to that day yet. And there are people all around us who can't worship Jesus because they don't know Jesus. And so we're sent to those people to see as many as possible turn from rebels to worshipers. Father, we are grateful that we can count ourselves among those who have been transformed from a rebel to a worshiper. Assuming that everyone here has experienced that transformation, that new life in Christ. And Father, I I ask that you would come and speak words of assurance to those who are your children. So that they know in the deepest part of their being that they have been born again, that they are new creations in Christ. So that we can continually walk in repentance and say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. But Father, there may be some here who's never come alive in Christ, never become a new person. So Father, I ask that you would you would come after them right now. I'm hopeful that you've already been coming after them. They would sense the calling of the Father for the child to come home. They would see the beauty, the glory of Jesus in his gospel that he accomplished everything necessary for salvation. And that today, right here, right now, they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And Father, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth with our voices, with our giving, with our sharing in the cup and the bread, and the way that we love each other. Help us to make much of you. You are truly worth it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.